Welcome to the Panza Panza Forum. In the Yoruba language, the word panza is usually injected into poetry to express an uncomfortable, uncensored and inconvenient truth. The Panza Panza Forum is candid conversations about the life of African immigrants in America as it relates to their adaptation to their new home. While some may find it easy to integrate and can balance between retaining the original African culture while accepting the culture of their new home, many continue to struggle to find a balance between both worlds. Hello and welcome to Panza Panza Live. This is a podcast where we discuss the lives of African immigrants and their assimilation into Western society as they raise younger generations in a country that is quite different from their own. We also explore the experiences of children of immigrants as they balance the African and Western cultures. We present to you this informative, interesting, and expansive dialogue about the intricate experiences of African immigrants in America. So, hey everybody, thank you for joining me today. So, I just want to welcome everyone to Pansa Pansa Podcast. I'm your host, Kemi Serikui, and today I'm having conversation with Miss Lola Aforu, an author, African immigrant sister from Syria alone. Miss Aforu is an educator. She's a feminist storyteller, a researcher. She's the author of Lupus or Me, How I Choose Me. In a memoir, Miss Aforu recounted her troubled childhood growing up in the city of Freetown the capital of Syria alone. Ms. Aforo tells the story of her childhood difficulties that she couldn't share with her family and friends because she felt nobody would believe her and that she might also get in trouble for speaking out. So I recently met Ms. Aforo through mutual friends, Sister Taiwo and Kende, and we talk about her coming on Pansa Pansa podcast. I was so thrilled when Ms. Aforo accepted my invitation. So thank you for coming to this platform, to have conversation with me about your experience as an immigrant from Syria alone and as an educator and the selfless work that you are doing in bringing awareness to childhood trauma that is really addressed among Africans in the diaspora. Thank you so much for being here. And I want to thank everybody who came here to support because this is a short notice for nine people to join us, 10 people to join us and they're willing to come and give you the support. That shows the kind of love and connection that people really have for you. So as I regularly ask my guests, my sister, can you fully introduce yourself? Talk a little bit about your background to our audience as to where you were born and where you spent most of your childhood and adult life. Thank you very much, Sister Kemi. It's so nice to meet you and when I heard about this pansa, what does pansa pansa mean again? Pansa pansa is a Yoruba slang that means uncomfortable dialogue. I'm going to yes. tell you something you don't want to hear. <laughs> okay. Yes. And I was really thrilled because it's an uncomfortable dialogue that we really need to talk about from the continent and even in the U.S. So my name is Esther Lola Aforo. I was born in Sierra Leone in the capital city of Freetown many, many moons ago. Thankfully, this year, February 24, I'll be 60 years old. <laughs> and also, I am a very, very lucky and blessed woman. About seven months ago, I had a long transplant. And so I'm thriving with that. It's a lot of healing going on, but I am blessed with so many cheerleaders, so many family 
and friends that have been behind me and praying for me. It's a big journey. I'm thankful. I've come a long way. I think that as a child in Sierra Leone, you know, a lot of things, we'll talk about it here at the childhood business, but a lot of those uncomfortable situations that happened to me as a young girl has pushed me into a lot of my trouble years that I see in the future. But I was able to excel and move through it. Came to America, migrated as a young girl. I was only 18 going on 19, married. Hmm. Then I came here, I went to school, studied so many. I started with childcare, then I did accounting, then I did clerical, then I did hair, then I did nails, I did all kinds of certificates I was gathering. Just trying to find myself as a young girl without having somebody to direct me. Only my husband at the time. But then all of a sudden, I felt like I was more than that. So Mm -hmm. I went to a community college, got that community associate degree. Then I did a four-year degree at Florida State University in management and public relations. Then I worked for about 10 years. I proceeded to get a a master's degree in public relations and education at Georgetown University in master's. And I worked for Georgetown University. And then I have worked in many places. I worked at Emory University at Georgetown, even went home and worked for the University of Sierra Leone for several years. But the illness and the struggle of life has brought me to this point. And so that's just a brief story of where I am, but we can dive into it. I want to ask you because I always ask every African immigrant that come on the Pansa Pansa podcast. This is a platform where we talk about uncomfortable conversation and we talk about immigrant experiences in the diaspora. What would you say are some of the challenges or struggle of being an African immigrant woman in America? Oh my gosh. First of all, it all stems back to childhood. When I came here, I was only 18, 19, and my husband is older than me for about 10 years. Mm-hmm. And one of my first, first sad experience that I had is when we, I've never been to a female doctor to uh, OBGYN before. Mm-hmm. And so he had to take me to one. And when he took me to one, I didn't know what was going to happen. They had to open my legs and look at me and all that stuff. And, you know, I went to a, a society in Taylor they called FGM, female genital mutilation. That was. Uh, so when the doctors look at me, they were like, what happened? what happened? What happened to this girl? And then they called a bunch of people. They came and looked at me. I was so scared. I started crying. I'm like, what is going on? I was so scared. I was shaking. And my husband was like, what happened? I told him what happened. And then, you know, and since I never want to go to any doctor, I just felt like that was my first really eye-opening and very difficult moment for me. In America, I, I really knew that I was different than a lot of women. And then I started researching and learning about it and knowing that. And I know that I had a lot of pain from that, but mm-hmm. I didn't realize because in Sierra Leone, most girls are like me. Mm-hmm. But when I came here, that was my first big eye opener. So many other things as my, the way I talk, the way I act, mm-hmm. the way I look. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I was able to overcome a lot of things because of my strong background. Yes, that's that's very powerful. And I hope that during that time when the doctor actually checked you and they were surprised about female genital mutilation experience that you went through, they're able to provide you some kind of counseling 
services during the time? Nothing like that. Nothing. I, I believe those doctors didn't even know they were shocked. Wow. That was in 1982. Wow, that was the doctors cool. were shocked and they didn't yeah. really know what was really a lot of doctors were not really familiar. They were really shocked. I thought some of them were even scared for me and they got me so panicked. I don't oh, know wow. if I had something, but thankfully, then I got pregnant. When I got pregnant, I had to go back and see OBGYN. I refused. I told my husband, I'm not going anywhere. But I met a young girl, a Nigerian girl who was FGM wow. and she's Muslim Hausa girl. She told me, she says, Lola, don't be scared. He said, I'm going to show you. There's a place they call Plant Parenthood. He said, those people don't know about us. Come there. They'll, they'll wow. help you. Wow. And that time I went to Plant Parenthood. Although they said they do abortion, they do this. I've never had abortion there. Mm -hmm. But the lady was so gracious. Helped me out. Embraced me. Talked to me about it. And that was my first opening. That's why I really love the Plant Parenthood business. And my daughter that you see there, that was the baby that I had in my stomach. And I went to Planned Parenthood and they really helped me out. And I'm so glad you mentioned Planned Parenthood because when we as immigrants seeking medical help, medical care, you want us to be in a space where there is cultural competency, uh -huh. where those who are giving you the services, they actually understand your culture and they make you feel comfortable respectfully and yes. you know the patient will heal and this is yeah, part of and, why the conversation yes. within our community regarding us coming together to understand that we have to stand up for one another yes and then it's also a sliding scale it's something you can afford and i mean i, th I thought it was mm -hmm. really i only paid about <laughs> every time i go there i pay ten dollars a week and it was it was, it was i always look mm -hmm. forward to mm -hmm. going there it was just a beautiful place. Like I, wow. it, it made my pregnancy so good, and I believe in it, and mm -hmm. it was just wonderful. That's, that's very powerful. So what would you say surprised you mostly about America? Surprised me, actually, when I came is the food. Because when I was coming, I'm like, I like okra, I like our vegetables, rice. I thought when I come to America, I'll be, I will not see those things. When I went to the supermarkets, I was so happy when I saw like hot peppers. I saw wow. okra. I saw these little things. That was really, for me, one of the things. I said, oh, well, I can survive here. I can mix spinach and okra. I can, you know, and then I, I found palm oil. It was really good. So that was one of the, the food area that really impressed me. I mean, negatively, so many other things. But as people think you talk funny, yeah. I mean... I don't want to brag, but I think I look pretty, pretty. Yes, of everywhere. course. <laughs> <laughs> you beautiful. When I, came, when I came, everywhere I go, people will just like, what? What a beautiful, are you from Africa? Really? African mm. girls look like you? I'm like, of course, I just came. Yes. And I had some wonderful braids that was just, and I could braid, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I came here in two days. I have more than 10 people want me to braid them. Oh, wow. wow. I, started, I started making money right away because they were just like gravitating towards my braids. Yes, yes. And then my husband said, you know what? We're going to make some money. So he made flyers. Before you know it, I was making money every week. So, And you have a good personality that attracts people to you. <laughs> yeah, people just, they were just attracting to me. And, and it was, it was a, in the beginning, 
But you, you meet some rough things about challenges when you have access. People want to take advantage of you and then, you know, mm -hmm. but then I was mingling with international students a lot. We live in an international student housing. It was pretty good. Yeah, that's really nice. So what would you say you appreciate mostly about America? When I just came, I was happy about the education mm -hmm. and the opportunity and being able to express myself and the research and all that. But the thing that I'm most grateful today, I know that for sure. If I was in Sierra Leone today, I would not have been alive. Mm. I am so grateful for the health system in America. Mm -hmm. With my lupus, that all started with me and they figured it out. Nobody knows what lupus is in Sierra Leone. Mm. Even when I moved there, I couldn't find a doctor that can help me. Mm. Only time I can get good treatment is when I come back here. Mm. And then it developed, can you imagine it developed my lupus ended up giving me interstitial lung disease oh, where wow. I got this lung problem. Wow. And in Sierra Leone, <laughs> they don't even have the oxygen that I need. Wow. So I had to come back here and I was dependent on oxygen for 10 years. Mm. Until two years ago, the doctors told me, if you don't get a long-term plan, you will not survive. That's wonderful. That's so great. So health has been my most, really, I'm so thankful for America. And even during my birth, having my daughter, the kind of, you know, I just see that America is just a world class for yes. health. Yes. And they have blessed me with everything that I have. Yes. So it's for me, the health has made an impact in my life. And I will never, ever forget this country. Yes, yes. Thank you so much for that because we have to show appreciation of yes. the country that are able to pull us in and they give the opportunity whereby, you know, where we're coming from, they don't have those kind of services that yes. can be provided. So thank you so much for that. So now let's talk about your childhood experience in Syria alone. Mr. Aforo, can you share some of your memory of your childhood that stands out in relation to the yes. abuse you experienced as a child growing up in Syria? So first of all, I will just tell you that I came from a polygamous home. My dad has many wives, and my dad is a Nigerian, Yoruba man, who migrated to Sierra Leone and met my mother, who is a fuller Timney. And first of all, wanted to marry her. There was a little conflict in that, in the culture of bringing yeah. them together. That's another, we really need to talk about that in another time. <laughs> in terms of the marriage and the problems and all that, yes. which had affected me personally. Yes. Regarding myself and even my daughter. And I'd like a space that we can discuss that one day. Yes. But anyway, my mother was a really strong woman and married my, even for whatever reason, she tell them, I want this man. And she and my dad, they got married, I had several kids. My mother ended up having seven children. Then my father married another Sierra Leone lady, so with two wives in the house. But my mother was a go-getter and a businesswoman, always go go find money. She's a fuller. I don't know if you know about the fuller. Yes, They're yes. very similar to the Yorubas. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, they like to, yeah. So she'll leave us and everything. I'll stay with the, my other mother at home. I mean, my mother was a good mother. She did what she can do. But when you have children, stepchildren, and they're your children, there's some kind of demarcation, you can feel the that kind of thing. So I had a lot of that going on, but 
as a young girl, I put up with it, but it became very a point to be neglectful. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I feel alone. Mm -hmm. And as a young girl, when you are neglected, you're alone, the things that can happen with you, the advantages. So I was, I think I was, I may have been about 10 or so when I started having a lot of neglect, mm -hmm. physical abuse, emotional abuse, that even come to sexual abuse as a 10 year old. Wow. Just because I was always in a quiet space. And then I was so terrified. I was scared. I don't know what was going on. And so it just continues. I never told anyone. Mm. And I lived with that for the longest. And that, that some of the impact, like I used to wet my bed a lot. I used wow. to be scared of the dark. And when I came to America, I heard about all these things. Those are signs of a little person trying to tell you something. Mm. But home, nobody knows. In yeah. fact, they have what they call, I don't know if you know about this, Kemi, they'll beat you up in public and they, they, they call you wet bed. I have a song that is Yes, yes, I know. I know. Yeah, so I went to... Without mm -hmm. understanding why the child is actually wetting the bed, you don't, there's no explanation and they... No explanation. <laughs> they let you hold your, your wet bed and it was, it was just disgraceful. I was, I was really a sad girl. And I always say this, if it was in America like this clever kid, I may have committed suicide because mm -hmm. I was really alone. I was scared. And some of the people that will abuse me, the men or the abusers will tell me, if you tell on me, you'll be in trouble. You'll be the, you know, they scared me and give me all the stuff. So I grew up to be this. I was very shy and, and, and then, you know, and I didn't talk and I was not comfortable talking to my stepmom. She was mean with me all the time. And I was always shy and acting funny. Then she'll nickname me some sad names like, I'm a lazy girl, call me lazy one and this, that. It's a lot of little things like that. But I guess she was ignorant and she didn't know. I don't know what was going on. But I went through years of many things like that. And then I just grew up. <laughs> and one day I started fighting. I remember I went to for when I was about 12. I went for vacation up, up country and I met this girl. I spent the night with the girl. At night, her brother-in-law came in the room and raped her in front of me. And after she finished raping her, she wanted to, he wanted to rape me too. That was my first fight. And after that, I kept fighting. I said, I will never let this happen to me again. And I sat running and I started to talk, started to be strong. But then I met FGM that came the female genital mutilation, that even added to my suppression. Yes. It really made me just, just went into depression. It was such painful, the most painful. I mean, just imagine they cut you and lay you down. They yes. use razor blade and cut your, your, your clitoris and your labia. Yes. And I was only about 14. Wow. So it was really, after that, it was really tragic. I was so scared. And that made me don't ever want, I didn't want any man or anybody to ever touch my private parts. I was so defensive and so scared. All that has happened to me in the past, I will never let anyone, I don't even want anyone to touch me over there because it hurt for more than a year. Yes. Very painful. You know, I remember after I came out of the bush from the society, when I was washing, I would bleed. Or when I walked, my feet, it will hurt. It was really, really tragic. But anyway, I went through that until I met Leanne's father. 
She was mm -hmm. he was ten years older than me, and he was really, really nice and kind and gentle. Mm -hmm. And I was scared to do anything, but eventually he gnawed me into it, and and that's when I started to be relaxed. But I never, never wanted to do it. But, you know, as I grow older, I started to speak out. And then I came to America. I got a little bit liberated. Yes. A little reading and research. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I decided I wanted to tell my story. It makes mm -hmm. me feel relieved. Mm -hmm. And But then it was such of because my husband was like 10 years older than me or more. Mm -hmm. And then I got married when I was only 18. That's very early. Yeah. And I was I was looking at him as a dad, as a I, I thought he was gonna be the one to help me like mm -hmm. he's been doing. But it turned out it wasn't. We came to America, it was a different story. Oh my god, that's so sad. It's it's so sad. And I know your story will impact so many people because I believe many African immigrants could relate to your story. So when you were going through these challenges as a child, did you reach out to anybody? I couldn't because I've seen in the community when other girls are my age talk about it, they beat them. Hmm. They beat them. They tell them they are lying. And even when I'm old like this, when I tell some of my family members and people, some, some of they, they don't believe me. Wow. Even now, but I know that I'm not lying. There are so hmm. many men out there and women out there. Why would I just make a story up as if I'm a dreamer? Hmm. So I just decided I'm not even going to worry. I'm going to, that's why I wrote Lupus on Me, because I feel like that book will give a stage, because a lot of people don't know about Lupus, but Lupus is really related to stress. And when you're a young person or somebody, you've gone through so many stress, environmental and other things, stress come on and it works on your immune and you get sick. Sometimes you don't know where your sickness comes from. Yes. So this is why I wrote that book so I can tell my story and let people know. As a young girl, the kind of challenges that I met, the kind of handling it all about myself, and then ended up divorcing my, my husband because he was abusive physically, mentally, emotionally, every way he was. And I just got tired of it. And when I did, when I left him, he abandoned me and my daughter, abandoned us completely. My daughter was only 12. He never spoke to us until he died. Never. Both of us. I raised my daughter with the blessing of the village, yes. my, which includes my family and close friends. Yes. And yes. I'm proud of her because she has done excellent. She, even though of the backlash and everything that we went through, she succeeded in life and went to college and made me proud. So mm. I'm, I'm really thankful. Yes. Yes. Wow. That is as a person who went through childhood traumatic experience, then coming to America, meeting your husband from Africa, from Syria alone, and you came to America, traveled together, and then he came here, he became abusive himself. You know, sometimes we don't even talk about how some of our men became who they are. Because when you grew up in a society that normalized domestic violence, yeah. towards women, that it's okay to beat a woman. It's okay to beat your wife. It reflects back. Beat your wife, you even if they don't want to have sex. That's, you, you know, you, you feel like you've been raped. Yes. It's, it's crazy, but I was here alone. I was only 18. And, you know, I put up with it for a very long time. And 
the good thing is my daughter and I have a good relationship and I tell her a lot of this stuff and she saw a lot of this stuff. So, but anyway, I was a woman enough. A lot of my African community ladies, they look down on me and they shame me for leaving my husband. But later, a lot of them follow suit. They followed me, you know, because most of our husbands are abusive. They mm. abused, they abused mm. us. And I said, I'm not going to stand up for it. And then I got sick with lupus. I didn't know where I got it from. It was really crazy. Yeah. That's why women, because of the cultural demand that a woman must have a husband, you have to be married, you have to have children. The women, in terms of their own feelings, their own welfare is not being addressed. And that's why domestic violence continues to penetrate all over the places in different parts of Africa and they normalize it. It's like normalizing abnormal behavior and then call it culture. You exactly. Reference that is part of our culture or is part of our religion. So it's okay if you beat your wife, it should be accepted. Yes, even in Sierra Leone, we've seen it. My daughter and I were there when some girls would say, ah, no, that, that's my husband. He's beating me so he can correct me. I'm like, it's, when it's were, crazy. When you were growing up in Sierra Leone, were there any moments of a breather or positive experience during your childhood? Kind of like, Anything that actually helped you to cope, that you kind of use as a way to cope? One of my way, yes, one of my way to cope is silent. Mm. You see, I'm very outspoken now. Yes. Everybody that knew me when I was little, they just thought she was quiet. Even my family, they're shocked. They are shocked because I pick my mind. I tell them exactly how I want now. I okay, know. so we were talking about the way I cope. So my way of coping yeah. was, I was just quiet. I think it was worse because I didn't talk. So because I was just quiet, people used it. My sisters, my brothers, my family, they misused me. I became like a doormat because I was scared that the world would fall on me. Hmm. I was in a dark place for a long time. My coping mechanism was I read, I write, I had pen pals. I was by myself. I was very quiet that people can actually move me from one angle to another. And I feel like because I was, so, I, I was so quiet, I got abused a lot, sexually, emotionally. I was always like just running away. But now when I know better, I am talking, mm. I'm speaking, I tell you my mind. Sometimes when I tell my sisters, especially my family members, when I tell them how I feel, they get mad. But I say, I don't, I don't give a damn about how you feel. This is my feeling. I want to write this book. I'm writing it. And this is my story. You know, there was no coping, really no coping mechanism. I prayed. I prayed. Sometimes I prayed. I have prayed. I, sometimes as a little girl, I used to even say, I wish I can just exit this world and don't come back. I just was in that place. So I didn't have, I didn't have anyone to talk. I was scared to talk to my mom, scared to talk to my sisters. In fact, you can't even talk much to your big, your, your, I mean, my, um, I remember when I was a little girl, I think I was another time when I was around 11, when I was, one of my sisters took me to stay with some lady that's supposed to help me because she's educated. When I went there, she turned me almost like a slave girl and I was sexually mm-hmm. abused and molested there as well mm-hmm. until I got sick of pneumonia. That's the very first time. I got sick of pneumonia. I was admitted for a long time and I almost died. And I told them I wasn't going back to that lady. Mm-hmm. And I did it. But so you, you, you can't because you, you have to do what your 
elders say and what you're directed. There's no, you can't, you can't really speak. I know a part of the consequence of traumatic childhood experience, there's a lot of consequence, both physically and mentally. What would you say are long-term effects or the consequence of the abuse you experienced as a child? What is this consequence for you as an adult? You know, I, I will tell you this one thing. I would think that because I can tell you, I had more than six sexual predators in my life. Mm. I could tell you that for sure, including family members. Mm. But as a girl, as I grow up, I've seen girls who have been promiscuous. I could have ended up like that because I was very attractive because men want me like (laughs) I was. But after the FGM, I just became so scared of men. And I decided I don't even want to go on that side of my life anymore. I want to just be by myself. I could have been a nun. Mm. I just was just over with it. But I really think this. A lot of girls that we see in Sierra Leone that are from East in the street, they have been molested from childhood. Yes. And they didn't have a saving grace like me. And they just went. A lot of young girls, you see, beautiful. Watch what happened to their little girl, the childhood. But I was so lucky and I was saved and I God helped me and I changed my course. So it's negative, but I think it's positive in a way. And then after that, I became self-control of my womanhood. Mm-hmm. I just decided to do that, that I have to control. God gave me that. I prayed about that and coming to America really helped me on that side as well. Negatively, I think that in fact, my daughter always tell me, mommy, you're so sensitive. I'm still sensitive. I yes. feel like somebody wants to break me again. Mm-hmm. So I always, I always be like fighting, like so sensitive. It's not because of anything. It's because of what has happened to me. I am not letting myself open to that again. In fact, I'm quick to run because I don't want to get back to where, where I am. But with my, with my husband, Leanne's dad, I didn't have a chance. I put up with a lot of crap and I I was dying inside. I was depressed inside. I I had no family members. I was the only one here with him. He was my all in all Mm. as an 18 year old girl. So I got sick inside and wrapped up my immune system. Mm. Yeah, I will, I will pass. I will be, I was, I will pass out. I don't even know why I pass out as a young girl. I just have my head will just flip and I'll pass out and fall. And once in a while, we've had bouts where he'll hit me on my head and bang me on my head. So it's a lot of that, but I feel like all those things led me to my immune system, corruption and everything. Mm -hmm. And then I started to feel sick. Then I learned about what is called lupus, which has brought me into this journey that I'm still trying to to relate to. I've never smoked. I think yeah. generally I've been a good girl in, in, in life. I've done the right thing, but so maybe God is in, in me with me. Because even when I have my this long term plan, many people cannot do it. Yes. But God has blessed me with it. Yes. Yes. So I feel like it's a journey that's a lot of negative but to positive. You are a true survivor. As somebody said in the chat, you are a really true survivor. And uh, you continue to survive because God actually put you in the right place. 
that helps you to continue to live, to continue to grow. And yeah. in, in your book, you talked about many challenges and the adverse experience of a young girl that you went through growing up in a society where girls and women are marginalized. marginalized. How does cultural belief, societal expectation, and poverty play a role in parents' decision or the situation women found themselves in many African countries? It's a very deep question. I'll tell you, I have, I have a large family. Mm-hmm. And my older sister, she was a girl that was married very early to a very rich man in Sierra Leone that was many years older than her. And so she's like the matriarch of a family. But she's young and she's a matriarch and she had to make decisions for most of her, which she still does. Some of her decisions were not, I wasn't very happy with it, but I just had to go with the flow of whatever she says because that's the culture. And my mom was just like, my mom just left a lot of things to her and always tell us that she is the one that will lead us. And so I believed in her. I have other sisters, but... She's really good, but what I'm saying is that the culture sometimes plays a lot of responsibility on young people and demand of so much. For instance, before you go to FGM, they tell you if you ever, ever have sex before FGM, something bad will happen to you, hmm. like die or some sickness or, you know. But I, I didn't even know what they were going to do to me But in the, in the society, but I had all those, imagine I had all those sexual predators, those people that <laughs> I didn't even know. I went, but nothing happened to me. I went through sexual, I went through uh, um, FGM and nothing happened to me, even though I had so many sexual abusers before I went. So <laughs> you see the culture, you see how it backfired. Yes. So some of those were the reason why. And then when you went into FGM, they tell you if you talk about it, something will happen to you. And I start talking and nothing happened. Hmm. Those are emotional for me. There's such emotional traumas, pain. You know, it's psychological. Yes. And all the stuff that you don't know about. But when I came to America, thankfully, I'm very open. Mm -hmm. I, I met some good people. Like I have a Caucasian lady who has been a good mentor to me, Julia Goodwin. She's been very good. Helped me to see the brighter pictures and don't be scared that I'll be okay. And then I start learning. I, I educated myself. I became so liberal. I start speaking. I didn't care. I just pursue. And then when I got divorced, I, I felt so liberated for my, my husband. And I was raising, concentrating on raising my daughter. I was so scared of getting married. I got divorced when I was young. A lot of men wanted to marry me. Hmm. But you can ask my daughter. I did not dare to do it. I raised her by myself. Only time I did it when she was ready to go to college, I decided I would get married again. That was the worst thing. And when I saw that he was a snake or the worst, I left him right away. So you were able to, <laughs> you were able to point it out from the beginning and said, I'm not going to go. I, I said, I'm again. not doing it. I mean, I, I, I managed, I managed it for about five years. After that, I said, this is it. And it was really destroying me as well. So after that, you know, I've been writing. It's been more than 15 years writing and just, I mean, I dated, but I don't, as soon as you look like a fool, I'm throwing you out. Sometimes, you know, when we go through traumatic experience or went through a relationship that was very abusive and you learn from that and you're able to spot check 
what is coming in front of you. You'll be ready to get rid of any issue coming in. Any man that is trying to bring issue to your life, you'll be able to quickly acknowledge it and get rid of it and say, I'm not going to go through this again. And not only men, not only men, even girlfriends, women. Yes. You cannot, you can, you're able to, even family members. Yes. Yes, (laughs) Yes. you will. You will be able to say, you You know what? You need to be in that distance from me. I love you from a distance. That's right. That's right. Because you have to think about your own sanity. Exactly. Especially now that I have two grandkids. Yes. I want to stay here for and let them see me all the struggle and sacrifice and pain and healing with my lung transplant just because I want to be here for them and my family and my good friends and my cheerleaders. So I keep pushing every day that I just came from the hospital. I had a rejection. I told you. Yeah, but yeah. I, I I feel good. It's just that the long is speaking. Yeah. Look at me, I'm speaking, you know. Yeah, but, that's true. <laughs> but you see, but I just had to come out and let you know, I just want to tell my stories. Today, today is today. You don't know what happens tomorrow. So how do you think how have you been able to balance self-care, maintaining normalcy and stay positive in this face of adversity? In terms of my life. Yes. Like I said, I have strong cheerleaders. And really, to be honest with you, I have one daughter. But I always say in her, I find 10 children. My daughter bought a house in New York. She lives in Sierra Leone. She pays my bills. Take care of me. Even when I I feel bad because I can't work, she'll tell me, Mommy, don't worry. Don't worry. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to do my best. And when I don't have that problem to worry about, I have a nice place to stay and be here and warm, and she's supporting me all around. Mm-hmm. And then I don't want to name because so many people I'll see here, and then I'll look into my bank account, somebody send me $100. Mm-hmm. And for me, I'm not one that's very greedy or ambitiously uh, want big things. I'm very, you know, so I've kept that to normalcy. And I'm not, I've worked and had good jobs that paid me good money before, and now I can't do that. I have to stay calm. But, you know, I'm a good, faithful servant of God, and I pray every day. I take my church very seriously, and I feel like the best of me is yet to come. So I don't, I don't worry about anything. I'm just mm-hmm. thankful for the people that support me each and every day. I've worked in America for more than 20 years. I've put in the system, so I was able to get good medical insurance where all my bills are always paid 100%. God is my witness. Even my medication, I don't. I do not ask or beg anyone unless people give me. But I don't ask. I'm very content. I must say that my family, especially my daughter, has helped me to really achieve what I want. Yeah. I get eight seven days a week that come here. People yeah. that come here seven days a week mm-hmm. take care of me, help me with my glossy, do this and that. My family members come in and out. Right now, my niece is staying with me. Hmm. She picked me up from the doctor. They vaulted tongue. Because the first six months of my surgery, I needed people here. They signed up. My niece, Ami, and my daughter, they made a list. I have friends that signed up one month, two weeks. One week, they came and covered the six months. Wow. And be here with me 24-7. Yes, that's very powerful. I have a nephew who took about Two months of his time, a boy, and stay with me, just to help me. And that comes from your own goodness also. 
and the people you surround yourself with, the aura about you, because, you know, no matter what we talk to, your parents have passed, they did their best of what they know based on the society that they were raised, they were exposed to, they grew up in. Mm -hmm. And through that, God bring you all these people to be part of your life, to give you that support. Look at today, just this morning, you announced to people and said, you know, I'm having a conversation. All these yes. people, just purposely for you. And these people, I tell you, I call them because I don't know what I would have done without these people. They have been my solid cheerleaders, my prayer warriors. They have been there for me too, thick and thin. And I'm just grateful. I'm really extremely grateful. I'm telling you because of these people that are here with me, I am able to, to conquer lung transplant. Mm-hmm. I always tell people, people think if you are not back in Africa, where there's a village, you cannot build your own village. Anywhere you are, you could always build your own village. That's right. And you already right. have that village That's all right. around you and everybody here to support you. And on a very proud note, I want to shine light. You said it before, a shining light on your academic achievement. Even though in this face of all these traumatic experiences, you were able to hand your college degree. Many certificates as well as job experience. Can yeah. you give it to those who are listening of what you have achieved today? Because your story can inspire others. Yes. So I came here as from a high school, as a high school girl. And I, I was only 18, like I said. I went through vocational schools. I was trying to find the what what really I want. And in anticipation of my daughter. My husband said I was too young. Maybe I need to go to some childcare course. So that's mm. why I end up in a childcare and I got a, a certificate as a childcare aide so I can better help my daughter when she comes. And mm. with that, that was a good start. I worked at home, babysitting and help other kids until she was about two. Then I decided I wanted to do something else. So I went into accounting and secretariat. Then I finished. I got a job with the state of Florida. I was working there for a while. Then I had that they can pay my tuition to go to college. So I went, to, I started taking community colleges. And then I also, like, after I finished with my community college for two years, I went back because I wanted to do some beauty, doing hair and enhancing and nails. And I did that, was doing a lot of weddings and business. I like that. But then I decided I want to go back to school some more. So I went back, I got my four-year degrees in business management and public relations. Mm. Then I, I worked for the, the Department of Education for a little bit. Then I moved to Georgia. That time I was divorced and everything. With my daughter, we moved to Georgia. I stayed with my family members, uh, my niece, who I raised here. She's a doctor now in Atlanta. I lived mm. with her for a little bit until I got on my feet. Then I worked for Embry University there mm. in the School of Public Health. I did that for a couple of years then. My daughter went to college. Then I told you I got married. I moved to Maryland. I got a job with Georgetown University. Hmm. And that marriage did not work out. I just knew. I've dated him for a while, but it just wasn't anything. It was going to be worse for me. And it, it really affected my lupus and took it to a different level. So I had to burn. And then when I was at Georgetown, when I was working there, I found out they can pay for my master's. So I took the opportunity, got a master's degree from Georgetown, 
And then a couple of years later, I decided I was going to move. When my daughter graduated from college, I graduated. I said, I want to go home. And my lupus was steady. Mm. I decided I was going to go home and work and give back because I've never done it. So I moved. I moved and I got a job with the University of Sierra Leone. And I worked there as the director of planning for a little bit. Then after that, I did uh, the head of the PIO, public relations department of the university. I did a lot of exciting things. I worked with a lot of students, taking all my expertise from Emory and um, <laughs> and Georgetown University. I really impacted a lot of students doing career management, professional development. I, I really got brought a lot of innovation in Sierra Leone. And I got a couple of grants from UNDP United Nations projects that they have in Sierra Leone. And we did a lot of stuff. And then my daughter moved after she graduated. She moved to Sierra Leone and walked wow. there as well and stayed with me. We enjoyed each other. Then she met her husband again. Another story, but then she has a daughter, a son, and she moved back to the U.S. And while she was here, I started to get sick, 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 sick. My lupus and my lungs started getting bad. And so she, she wanted me and said, Mommy, come and stay. You need to stay here and get well. And she really appealed to me. A lot of my friends. A lot of my friends told me, you, you will die behind Sierra Leone. You need to come. Until when I came one time, the doctors told me I need to stay. And that's when I stayed here. I stayed. Luckily, my daughter had moved and got a job and got a place in New York. And so that's how I started in New York, to live here. And I'm glad that you listened. You came back and stayed. <laughs> you know, so when you oh, came back. Oh, I couldn't. I couldn't. I mean, it was really bad that I, <laughs> I couldn't do it anymore. And then COVID came, then Ebola came. I said, you know what? I'm safe here. So I stayed. You know, while I was here in the beginning, I did some work around temporary work. But eventually I worked for the YMCA, helping the people that are transitioning in English to foreign language students. So I worked okay. for them for a little bit and, and educating adult education there while I was doing that until COVID came. It all started. Then my lungs started getting so bad. A lung transplant was imminent, so I had to settle down and do what I need to do. Oh, that's wonderful. So how was your background helping building self-discipline and resilience help you to develop ability to overcome all this adversity and adjust positively to a new life? Salem is very poor, impoverished, very poor society. And you've seen worse things. So a lot of things that people take for granted in America, I see it as nothing. Mm. Like I can go visit someone and say, sleep on the floor. I'll say, thank you. Uh, real Americans wouldn't appreciate that, you know. But like for me, I can sit down if I'm hungry right now, I can just have some rice and some palm oil or even get mm -hmm. green bananas and boil them and eat them. Mm -hmm. You know, we it's not a big deal in terms of that. That has helped me to know that I have to moderate yeah, yeah. living here, right? Yeah. And then, you know, the outcome, coming here as a young girl, what I've accomplished, meeting great people like the lady I told you about, Julie, Dr. Mm -hmm. Julia Goodwin. When I went to Sierra Leone and walked there, I impacted so many people. My Facebook friends, a lot of Sierra Leone students always shooting for me, ruling for me. Even at Georgetown University, I was working there. I have a lot of students, international students on my Facebook page because I was the coordinator of the international 
students in the MBA program. I mean, it's like the things that we, we exchange and the power over the years and yes. things I've learned from them. Yes. You know, just the way I fought. And my mother was a very strong woman in my life. And sometimes when I think about the things that she's done and, and the kind of road that she's paved, she survived polio and had all of them, mm. came from a very poor family. Mm. And now she based all of us and believe in education. Never want to let her down. Yes, yes. I always do things. And then my daughter, you know, having her as That's an only child. <laughs> That's your shining eyes. <laughs> and, and you know, she's been cheering for me and helping me to go through that, all what I've gone through. And even though I got divorced, her father abandoned us, she never let me feel down as a mother. Went to college, got her master's, got a degree, got a good job and taking care of me. What else do I want? Yes. What else yes. do I want? And gave me two beautiful grandsons. I believe that I'm the, um, on the side of God. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm very happy. These are the things that right now it pushes me. And I said, I really don't have anything to lose but to win. I'm going to conquer my lung transplant. I'm going to leave here. I'm going to see more. I'm going to do more. And one day I'm going to tell you, I, I'm even on a second book. It's called The Lung Transplant Journey. I'm working yeah, on it. That's what's keeping me busy now. I'm working on that. So that will be coming in out soon in the near future. Oh, my God. <laughs> that's so wonderful. That is so wonderful. I'm so grateful for you to come in, to come and talk to me today about this. And I uh, just want to find out if your daughter would like to say something along with this conversation, if she's around to unmute herself. Um, I'm here. <laughs> Thank you, Miss Kemi. I just want to say, you know, my mom is a beacon of light for so many people. Everyone on the call who's part of our extended family and friends, they all love her so much. She's just someone that, I don't know, she just radiates. Like you said, she radiates light and joy and all of those things, you know, and I, every day I grow older, you know, as a young child, you always be like, you know, I'm not like my mom. I don't want to be like my mom. You know, people say those things. But like every day I get older, every year I get older, I just realize how much more I'm like her because she's influenced me so much, so greatly, like through her journey, through all of the things that she does. She is very selfless and giving and she doesn't even give herself enough credit, you know, and I just love the fact that people, especially now, have gathered around her to really show her while she's here, you know how they say the expression, give people flowers yes. when they're still here. And so, you know, I'm so happy that we could do that for her. And I'm so happy that she's able to channel some of these things, some of this trauma, some of this built up over time energy that has been stored and, com and compartmentalized for so long into a book, into a way to share with others, into an advocacy platform and activist platform. Because even though she's not, in your face all the time and she doesn't have a, a podcast or she's not some big, you know, name out there. She has yes. touched many people through her advocacy and through her ability to be bold mm -hmm. and just tell her story. And I just, I'm just so happy to say that's my mom. I don't want to get emotional. It's okay. That's okay. 
That's okay. Everybody is. I'm almost tearing myself. That's so true. That is so such a great uh, tribute that you gave to your mom right now. And I really, I know she really appreciated it. You are such a great daughter because, it, it, like she said, if you could have, what more can she ask for? Because compared to another child who could have been giving her problems, you know, running here, running here, there after her, after you, nothing like that. So you are such a great daughter. You actually make it possible more for her to be able to handle the situation. You made it possible. You are part of it. So I really want to thank you for your contribution. And I want every people to unmute themselves if they have anything to say and contribute to this podcast so that, you know, when it's published, you know, many people will appreciate what a wonderful, admirable person Lola Aforo is. Okay, this is Kathy from Tallahassee, Florida. And now I want to let you know, Esther has been a beacon. And, you know, like, uh, she's like my little sister, the little sister, and, you know, I always wanted because I'm uh, my mom's last baby. When she was here, oh, my mom adopted her as one of her daughters, okay? Mm-hmm. She'll come and do my hair, my kids' hair, my mom's hair. She won't charge. She won't charge anything. She did it out of love. And I'm really, really, I feel for her. All that she said really touched me. But I know she's strong, and God is always on our side when we believe in him. Esther, you know, uh, I'm here for you, okay? Thank you. Anytime. I love you. I love you too. Okay. Okay. My name is Malaika. Lola, I don't know what to say. All I can say is you're a force of nature. I mean, (laughs) talking about everything you've been through is... (laughs) This lady is love personified, okay? She is not perfect, but she's good. And that's why wherever you are, Lola, whatever you need, your needs are always covered. Amen. Just open your mouth and ask because God has already given it to you. And you will live and you will live fully to testify the love of God in the land of the living. God bless you and bless Leanne too. And those wonderful grandsons of yours. (laughs) Thank you. you. Hey, my name is Hawa and I am here in Georgia. I just want to say that Lola, this lady here that you're speaking with today, she has tremendous impact in so many people's lives. And she has even no idea. She has no idea because just like myself, when I first moved to the U.S. and got married to her cousin and I lived with her. And I'm saying this, this is not this is living with after living with her for a year. And ever since she got it, I got met her. And my late husband told her, so you guys are going to be friends forever. And that's what happened, even though he's no longer alive. And Lola has been the big sister that I never had. And I've seen her, living with her for a year, I've seen how much people she has helped out. And she has been helping people the hardest time of their life. Like when somebody moved to America, that's when you have nothing you don't understand nothing. Now, a lot of people after that, they go and grow and, and, and go to school and make money and all that. But she helped people when they first got here. Some people didn't have enough clothes or enough food. Some people like myself, you don't even know where to go. You know, I have my own relatives, of course. But when I got married to her cousin and we didn't even know where to go at first because he was in the military and he had to go out of sea for six months. And we made calls to so many people 
before calling her. As soon as he picked up the phone and called her, this lady went and picked us up in the bus station at 3 a.m. in the morning after just calling her and asking, can I come to you and drop my wife off? She never met me before. She, we're not even from the same country. I'm originally from Mali, even though we are all Africans. But can you just imagine who will do that in America? That's the woman that you have today. Yeah, and I cannot tell you enough. I would say every day, this woman had a heart of gold. And if some some people recognize it, some people don't, but that's okay. That's why she's over always protected by her the kindness of her goodness. And another thing I want to tell you, while I was staying with her and the war was going on in Sierra Leone, I saw this woman, the way she was taking money, She at that time she was going to school and working and we were doing, she had her cosmetology license and I was working with her doing hair and stuff. And she will take money out of her own bill, her bills money to send it to Africa to support her family. That's the type of woman you have on your plate today. She helps. She helps. When even her last meal, she will take it and give it to someone if she, she knows that person is in need. A last thing I want to mention to you, to your viewer, to know about this lady. Everything that she's going through while she's in the hospital, going through transfer and everything, ever since her ma mother passed away, she has been, she has an organization in, in Sierra Leone. Every Friday, she feeds tons of people. Every Friday. People that have no food in the, in the house. She feeds, she feeds them in the mask over there in Sierra Leone. Every single Friday. When even during COVID, she would, they were tied in the rice and give it to families so they can feed themselves. Somebody that is sick, she has no income right now, she's not working. But that will tell you what kind of heart she has. So some of us are here, we make like thousands and thousands of dollars a month. But look at what she can do with the little money that she has. So with that, I will learn my plan. I had to say this to you. Thank you very much for having her. And she is so grateful. God has been blessing her and she will continue to bless her because she has a heart of gold. Thank you so Thank much. You. Amen. 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 This is Afia. This is hi, Auntie. Hi. I'm gonna say what I have to say because you know I'm a crybaby. But <laughs> one thing I can say is I'm sorry, hold on. The way that you treated my mother, Abdul Wusu, your best friend. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Wusu, you know that my dad loved you to death until he died. I know. Your best friend, your best friend visited my dad, and I told her, the one who lived in London, I forgot her name, and I told her I was going to come and visit him before, he, just period, and then he died. I say this to say, your spirit reminds me so much of my dad and my mom, because hearing the things that you have went through, I had no idea, and it makes me so sad to realize that you went through that as a child on your own. And I would need God to help me forgive those people who did that to you because right now I feel so bad that I want all of them to be dead because it's not right for you to go through what you went through. And your daughter, Leanne, I'm telling you, I used to come to the pool. We used to go to the pool together. You would do her hair. You would do my hair. You did Nana's hair. May she forever rest in peace. She loved you. Call Auntie Esther. I want Auntie Esther to do this. I want Auntie Esther to do this for me. 
And I want you to know that we love you so much. And we're going to start visiting you more. I'm just right here in Maryland. But continue to write your book. Tell everybody what they what you have to do. I would not be the strong woman that I am to be able to raise three boys by myself and leave an abusive relationship if I did not see what you went through. What I went Amen. through with even saying, yes. you know, I dated your husband's stepbrother. Yes. So the little abuse that I got from him, I, I don't see how you took it. Like I was really homicidal, not suicidal. But because of the strength that you gave me and I know you gave Leanne and you stood on top of your feet and you stood up on adversity and you went to college and you did all that you did in Tallahassee. Auntie Kathy is a witness. She knows you are going to be blessed for the rest of your life and beyond. Amen. And your grandkids, your grandkids are kings already. And just know that the strength that you had as a child, you needed that because you were going to have a child called Leanne. And Leanne was going to have two boys that she was going to have to raise. And you needed to be strong for her. So I'm just going to leave it at that. I love you so much. And you are the best, Leanne. I know you're listening and I know you're emotional too. But you're doing the best thing for your mom. And I love you so much for it. You're proud of you. Thank you. Somebody raise their hand, Alimatu. Yeah, thank you so much, Kemi, for granting the space. And Miss Lola Esther. Esther is a very powerful name. And you are a tower of strength. As an advocate myself, a survivor of FGM, I stand on a platform today, take that opportunity. On behalf of all our colleagues, friends around the world, Sierra Leone, I'm a Sierra Leonean as well, but raised in the UK. Not a similar experience to Miss Lola, but almost similar in terms of our experience of FGM. And with our pain, she reached out at a time when I was really at my lowest. Mm. You know, coming from Sierra Leone, whenever women speak, nobody wants to look into the pain and suffering of girls. And it's always, and this is something that has bothered me and troubled me for most of my adult life. And I've been only speaking for 30 years, but I just feel like it's forever because I was 16 when I was cut. And shortly after I was sent to the UK, I had no idea. You know, I grew up in a home where love was everything. I never knew the concept of pain, anger or suffering. And only to be subjected to something that I was told, you know, it just had no resonance in my life but I had to go through it and whenever I speak of my experience the attack and the abuse I got from women I was shocked you know I always questioned myself because I found myself because my grandparents subjected me to FGM my mom did not want me to go through it my father did not want to go through it so I've always had the backing of my family whenever I speak of my experience because my parents were killed. You know, they died inside when they knew what my grandmother subjected me to and they could not understand themselves. And I found myself trying to fight a fight for every other girl out there. And one day I was on Facebook and this group of women who I admire and respected just took it upon themselves to literally abused and violated my space for speaking out. 
and Miss Lola from nowhere reached out. I didn't even know the family connections we had. And she just was the strength and this courage and this amazing presence. Even though she was in New York and I'm in London, she reached out and she has never turned her back. And I look at her and what she has been through and today hearing her story, it just goes to show the strength in her, standing up to oppression, standing up to our family members, standing up to people who we've held high, thinking they would protect children, but don't do so. And I'm glad Howard mentioned her organization in Sierra Leone. I see the transformation she's doing, the impact in little lives, girls that could have gone through the life that Miss Lola herself has gone through, but she's shedding light for them. She's giving them that opportunity to thrive and at least have that closeness of what we would see as warmth and love and just leave in their society. And so on this very occasion of this poignant moment, as much as it's sad to hear, I want to also say this is the victory that many of us have worked so hard and to say no to abuse because the minute you stand up, and I think it's Maya Angelou that said it really perfectly, the minute a woman speaks up, unbeknown to herself, she gives others that opportunity, that platform to stand and be counted. And that is what she has done. She has not just educated us around the challenges that we face as women and girls, but she's also put herself in that place to say, Despite your predicament, you can excel. You can be whatever you want to be. Now, this is yes. not something many Sierra Leoneans and particular women have in themselves. So to see a woman who perceived that and put that out there and say, you can be whatever you want to be, despite the limitations that society has placed on you, you can overcome. And I really admire her. And I am definitely looking forward to the new book. And you are this light, this ray of light that shines and puts mm-hmm. smiles on other people. And you've made me love the color purple. <laughs> I love, love the color purple. And you are an amazing woman. We love you. And Leanne, ah, oh, you know, I wanted to go into the screen and just give you a massive hug, you know. But this is why we want to be strong for our children. I have two daughters myself and a granddaughter, and they see that in us. And I can see why our children are so brilliant. So Miss Lola, sending you love from London and have a great, great time and enjoy, enjoy this moment. And God bless you. Thank you. Thank you. God bless you. Thank you so much for everybody for contributing for this great tribute. I really appreciate it that everybody actually showed up and they have so much good things to say. And that's very admirable. I mean, I'm speechless. (laughs) For me to be speechless is something that doesn't usually happen. So how can I listen? I know you are working on so many other projects, Sister Lola. So what other projects are you working on now? Right now, really, I'm working on my health project. Okay. My healing, healing. my healing journey is my biggest project. A lot of tests. I see a doctor two, three times a week. Mm-hmm. It's my, my, like my job. My doctor said that, listen, you don't need a job. You have a job. Let's do this and fight this. So yes. right now, my that's my biggest project. Mm-hmm. Going through healing mm-hmm. and get ready for what's next to come. Yes. But I'm working on my book, The Long Transplant Journey. Okay. It's keeping me busy. Mm-hmm. And um, every day I write a mm-hmm. couple of hours a day. Mm-hmm. Hopefully by the end of this year, I should be able to pull it out. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, our, my Malayan sister talked about it. Mm-hmm. I feed in Sierra Leone. I have a feeding project. 
that I named uh, my mother. It's called Sijami Kitchen. And I feed every Friday, first Friday of the month, more than about 300 people. That comes out of my mm. money that I have, my little money I get from the government as a disabled. And then I owe disability money. And then I, I also get, a lot. sometimes people donate. People mm. just donate. When I write about it on Facebook, I have a GoFundMe. Mm. People donate mm. and just help. And they're just, just happy about what I'm doing. So I'm doing that, helping my daughter's, the house is here. I help to take care of the house. You know, just living my life. That's reading wonderful. my daughter bought me some puzzle books i do puzzles i eat well i try to exercise and mingle with people as much as i can yeah so how can a listener get your book that is already written i know you're working on another book or yeah the, the one that's already written it's called lupus and me it's on amazon mm-hmm. i don't have the handle but if you type lola aporo lupus or me it's going to come up on Amazon. It's not a, it's a very small book, but concise and very good. You read it, you learn more about me, learn about lupus and Africa as a Sierra Leone in particular. Are you also connected on social media? You want to list uh, the social media you connected, people could follow you to follow your Yeah, story. I am on Lola Aforo on Facebook. I am also on Instagram. I'm also on, well, WhatsApp, but. You know, if you type Lola Furu, I'm sure you'll find me. Mm-hmm. I don't have the handle, but you'll find me. And um, I'm always open to talk. And, um, you know, I'm glad that I have this platform with you. I've enjoyed it. Thank you so much. So in closing, I'm going to quote two African proverbs that says, mm-hmm. however a tree may be tall, it will never prevent sun from shining. And that sun is shining on you. And the other Amen. one says, the rock that is in the middle of the sea does not fear the rain. <laughs> okay? So this true traditional African proverb demonstrates was the importance of resiliency. Your mm-hmm. resiliency continues to bounce back in the face of all these many adversity. And your, your story is truly inspirational, Miss Aforo. Your ability to navigate difficulties with grace is sincerely commendable. So in closing, Pansa Pansa continue to normalize conversation about the importance of community engagement, about African immigrant experiences in America, childhood trauma, mental health, and physical health, and many more. So as I always say, as we continue to publicly discuss difficult issues within our community, we're shredding away stigma that is associated with uncomfortable dialogue. Thank you so much, Ms. Lola Aforo. I really want to thank your generosity, your vulnerability in sharing your experience with me today, and many others who may be transformed with your enlightenment after listening to this conversation today. Thank you again. I really appreciate you. Thank you so much. And thank you, everyone, for supporting me. I love you guys, and God bless you. Love you too. Bye. Thank you for joining me today for another episode of Pansa Pansa Podcast. If you'd like to connect with me, you can email me at talk at pansapansa.org and follow me on Instagram at pansa.pansaforum. Remember, each story shared has the power to inspire, educate, and connect us. And I hope today's episode left you with a new perspective and insight. Join me next time for another deep dive into the extraordinary narrative that makes us who we are. Until then, be kind to yourself and to others.